That's the Street Cashiers. I'm Andrew Houghton, and this is another edition of Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the new soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. On this episode, I'm excited to welcome in a few friends from my past life as a sports writer in Pocatello, Idaho. First up is local TV reporter Adrian Luevano. Adrian grew up in California but has Mexican heritage, and he's got some great stuff on how he balances his fandoms for the two countries' national teams. Then, Blackfoot High boys soccer coach Liam Pope comes on to discuss his unique background of growing up in both Idaho and England, and what it's like rooting for Manchester United with Cristiano Ronaldo back on the Red Devils. I recently spent some time in Pocatello, Idaho, covering Idaho State football and local high school athletics around there. I spent about two years in Pocatello working at the Idaho State Journal, and while I was down there, I met a lot of cool people. This is one of those people right now I'm excited to welcome into Soccer and Snow and Smoke, a good friend of mine from Pocatello, Adrian Luevano, who's a local TV reporter down there, although uh, sounds like he's got some career news coming up but adrian thanks for coming on with me thanks for having me man excited for you to get going back in missoula and i'm excited to be on this podcast so adrian and i came to pocatello basically the same time which was the fall of 2019 almost exactly two years ago and i was starting at the idaho state journal and you were starting at one of those tv stations down there and i always forget which one you're working at Local News 8, K-I-F-I. Local News 8, right. And he was working as a sports reporter anchor down there, so we were going to Idaho State football press conferences and stuff together, figuring out the beat at the same time. So, Adrian, I guess just talking about soccer, and there's some stuff that we want to specifically get into, but what have you been watching recently? Well, man, like, it's a fun time in sports right now, right, just in general. You got crazy MLB going on with NFL, and then you got some crazy soccer, too, with World Cup qualifying, you know, MLS coming down to the wire, Champions League coming back as well as, you know, the Premier League and all the leagues in Europe. So it's kind of fun to be on a Saturday morning and a Sunday morning, catch those games before some football, you know. Yeah, so we never really watched much soccer together when we were in Pocatello because it wasn't like you could uh, you could go to a game like the closest MLS team was down in Salt Lake, which is a two- or three-hour drive. We watched a little bit of Idaho State soccer together, which is – they're trying to rebuild the program up there. But just tell me about, you know, the, the teams that you like to watch. I mean, the teams that you root for. Um, and, and, like, what's your perfect weekend of soccer viewing is? You know, for me, I grew up being in a Mexican family, right? So, obviously, the Mexican national team has a big following in my family, and that kind of got passed down to me. But it's also interesting, too, because being an American here, you know, they always had that love as well for the United States men's national team and women's team as well. So it's kind of fun having those two teams. So when they play each other, I kind of never lose in that sense, that aspect, right? Um, so, you know, watching what the U.S. has done this summer against Mexico especially, you know, winning these cups has been really remarkable because I think now you can kind of see the gap is kind of closing, but it's not all the way there because Mexico still has so much depth on their team that the U.S. can't match. Right, so that's super interesting. This is something that I wanted to talk to you about, sort of like the, the dual national thing about it. Tell, tell people a little bit more about your background with like Mexican heritage, and then you grew up in California. Yeah, so I grew up in Fresno, close to Fresno, California. 
And so for me growing up, I was always that kid that was like, I'm American, you know, I want to watch football and all this stuff. And I didn't really pay attention to soccer until I got to like around 12 years old, right? And you kind of get, and I think the World Cup in South Africa kind of got me into soccer, especially. Um, and so then, you know, watching with my family and kind of learning more about, you know, Liga, MX, as well as Mexican national team, you know, that sparked my interest as well. And so when you're watching those teams, they're so different because the U.S. team is so physical, right? They're kind of bearing their, their, their size on you. They're kind of just wearing you down throughout the game. And on the Mexican national team and Mexican leagues and teams, they're more flair and style, right? And so that's attractive soccer as well. And so for me, it was fun bouncing around. And I was always that kid that, that loved watching the Mexican national team. But I also loved watching the MLS more than Liga MX. And so for me, I was always that kid that was going to those Galaxy games and watching David Beckham and Landon Donovan. And so for me, that also helped you know, grow my love for the game. And watching you know, David Beckham take a corner kick right in front of me was like an awe moment for me. But I didn't really understand the magnitude until like I got older. Like this guy played for Man U and... I didn't watch those leagues back then, so to kind of go back in time and be like, man, I saw this athlete play was kind of cool. Yeah, that's awesome. What? So you were there for for the Beckham years, uh, and they had Donovan and Robbie Keane, and that was one of the biggest yeah. you know dynasties in the history of MLS were those LA Galaxy teams. Did you get to go to a lot of those games, or, or like, what was your fandom like for that team? But yeah, here's the problem with that. So it's location in Los Angeles and traffic in Los Angeles, right? So my family, they live closer to Dodger Stadium. So where the Galaxy play, they play in Carson, which is closer towards, you know, South LA. And so that would take us like an hour trip with traffic just to get down there to the Galaxy game. So I would go, I would say I probably went to at least two Galaxy games a season. And I would go down there. And now here's where the other problem comes in. Now, LAFC is a lot closer to where my family lives. So I've been to a couple of LAFC games now, and that I don't want to switch teams because, you know, you, that's kind of not what you do in soccer, but it's just so much easier to go to LAFC. Yeah, the introduction of LAFC to MLS is sort of one of the coolest things about, I mean, one of the biggest trends in MLS in these recent years is expansion teams coming in and expecting to compete right away because they're spending a lot of money and they have a huge fan base. And, of course, my team, Atlanta United, came in and did that and won MLS Cup in their second or third year. And LAFC did that and and bought Carlos Vela right away and and was one of the best teams in the league their first year. So that's such an interesting dynamic for me. What were also interesting, too, because, like, when you look at it, too, like, look at Atlanta United, and it just shows you how tough MLS is compared to all the other like leagues in the world is you can spend money and have a great team for a couple of years, but then to be able to sustain that, you got to have a good front office and scouting as well. Because of the salary cap, it just injects so much of this yeah. American sports model into soccer, which has never has operated on a model that's completely separate from American sports because there's no salary cap. There's no draft in European and South American soccer. There's, you know, there's promotion and relegation. And MLS came in and said, okay, we're going to play soccer, but our league style, you know, our league format is going to be the same as all these other American leagues. So it's sort of a a really interesting experiment to me. And you're 100% right that, yeah, you need to have like some salary cap savvy. I mean, if 
Arthur Blank down in Atlanta or if LAFC's owners could spend as much money as they want, they would be stomping on teams like, you know, Chicago or a team like, yeah, Cincinnati or a team even like New England, who's the best team in the league this year, but doesn't spend that kind of money. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and that's the, like, that's the thing I love and hate about the MLS, too, is, you know, like, sometimes you get selfish and like, man, what would these teams look like if they can spend all this money? You know, Inter-Miami would not be in the middle of the standings right now. You know, uh, New York wouldn't be in third place. They'd be in the top two. And, you know, it would be interesting to see how money would work if it was just a free market. But at the same time, too, it's nice because you have the opportunity for, like, those Columbuses, those Cincinnati's. You know, call it a Rapids, Minnesota United, to actually have a chance. And that's what I like about it. You know, in MLS, you might think they're at the beginning of the season, like, man, this team's going to win it all. And then you get to now, and you're like, that team is nowhere close. And that's the fun part about it as well, the parody. MLS has more topsy-turvy results than any American league I've ever covered. I mean, in baseball, like you sort of expect the parody because the best team's going to win maybe 65% of their games every year. But MLS has the the most amount of just like, Results where you look at a final score and you're just shaking your head and you're like, how did that happen? Like, I thought this was the worst team in the league and then they're they're winning three nothing or something. You know, there, it seems like there's one of those results every week. We're talking about this at a super interesting time. Um, this is a Thursday, September 23rd. So Leon just beat Seattle Sounders three to two last night yeah. in the final of the League's Cup, but also MLS announced and Liga MX announced a huge expansion in the League's Cup, where now it's going to be every team in both MLS and Liga MX is going to be competing in a competition against each other that's separate from CONCACAF Champions League, separate from whatever one-off competitions that they were doing before. It seems like we're heading towards an era of greater synergy between these leagues, and I don't know if there will ever be a merger, but it seems like things are starting to head that way, and of course that's where the salary cap and all the other Americanized rules of the league start to hurt MLS because if you really want to compete on a global scale, if you really want to be one of the best leagues in the world, if you really want to be on the level of Liga Mekis, even just in North America, your teams need to be able to spend freely. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, I think we're heading down a path where the MLS is starting to realize that in order for them to, to get bigger and faster as a league in the world, is they're going to need to combine with the Mexican league down there. But the problem is, the Mexican league does not need to do that. You know, Liga MX doesn't need to merge with MLS, but they're at least see it as an incentive because of all the money they can make in the United States with these Mexican Americans being out here and watching their league and, and bringing it to their nearest neighborhood and playing these MLS teams. So that's where the tricky part gets in. But then you also got to look too: how does geography play in if they were to merge and even this new competition as well, where you're sending a New England team all the way down to, you know, Guadalajara to play Chivas. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's not going to really, it's a long trip. How are you going to make this work? Um, so that's another thing, too, we got to think about. Is it regional pods that they get placed in? And uh, how does things like that work? That's why I'm excited to see with this new competition how it's kind of the testing ground for all this, I feel like. It's so interesting. There's a lot of hurdles to a combined, you know, MLS Liga Mekis merger in the future, but it's there are clearly benefits for both leagues just in terms of money and footprint and exposure. 
this is one thing that I really wanted to talk to you about because this is what a lot of people don't understand or a lot of people like me don't understand who follow MLS and follow the U.S. national team. The most watched league on television in the United States is not MLS. It's not the Premier League. It's nope. not La Liga or whatever. It's Liga MX. The yeah. The most followed national team in the United States is not the United States national team. It's the Mexican national team, right? Like there's yeah. so much there's so much money in that, so many so many potential viewers, and it's just such an interesting situation, right? Because that's what a lot of the culture is. And it, it's funny too, because you know, like I here's where my personal thing I I broke my streak of going to Mexican national team games. So before I came to Idaho, I went to a Mexican national team game every summer for like six years straight, four four to six years straight, and so. Like, to break that streak sucks. But I'll tell you what, for me, the main difference between a U.S. game and a Mexican game, from my perspective, is there's just so much more fun at, when you go to a Mexican national team because it's like a family atmosphere, right? Like, everyone wants to be there. Everyone's having a good time. And you always hear, you know, all these Mexican fans get crazy and rowdy, and, of course, you see that. But the majority don't. It's the same thing with everything, right? The U.S. fans have the same issues, and it's just the way soccer is. Uh, but to me, I love going to those U.S. and Mexico games because it provides such an interesting culture of dynamics because it's like a Mexican national team home game on U.S. soil and it blows my mind every time. Right. This is why the United States national team does not play like World Cup qualifiers against Mexico in L.A. This is why the U.S. national team's biggest games against Mexico are always in like Columbus. It's so the stadium is not 75% full of Mexican national team fans. And it, it, I think that's too also a thing when it comes to the dynamics and people don't realize, like you mentioned, like about Liga MX being one of the top watched leagues in America. And it's just people don't think about it and it's always there. There always people tuning in because to these Mexican nationals that come from Mexico to the United States where we're born here, that's all they know and care about. And, you know, the NFL is making growth in Mexico, but soccer is still number one by far. And here in the United States, you know, we have so many things like basketball and football and baseball, all these top leagues. So you don't get that soccer viewership on a daily basis that's up there with these top leagues. But that's okay, too, right? The MLS is a thing where they got to realize their place as well. And I kind of like how they're going the same way of growing the game and kind of pushing it towards Mexican people and saying, hey, like, you know, we have these players, too. We have this flair, too. And they come out to our game, just check it out. Right? That's the biggest thing. I, I worked at a, a USL team in Fresno, and that was their biggest thing because they would constantly sell their stadium there in Fresno for Liga Amekis exhibition games. So oh, yeah. when I got time to the USL schedule, you know, it was tough to get attended. And that was one thing they tried to make it in roads. Hey, like, we know it's not your team. We know that. But just give us a chance and adopt us as a second team. And I think that's the best way to do it from the MLS and USL standpoint. Tell me a little bit more about your your fandom just for the Mexican national team. I mean, did that start the same time? I mean, when you were when you were twelve and you started to get into soccer. I mean, had that always been around your household? I mean, just how did that start? Yeah. So for me, you know, like I I would always watch the NFL, NBA, MLB. Uh, but whenever the World Cup would roll around, I would tune in and watch those Mexican and U.S. matches and kind of see how all that went. Um, and then that's when it kind of around when I was 12 years old when that one where the World Cup happened in South Africa. That's when I started kind of realizing, hey, I kind of like this sport. Like, this sport's kind of cool. Um, 
let me start getting into it. So I would watch more of their friendly games, but I wouldn't pay attention really to what was going on in Europe and things like that. I would more pay attention to MLS and what they were doing. And so that's why I go into the LA Galaxy games and did that stuff. And when it came to the Mexican national team, it was always that family atmosphere for me because that's what my family watched, right? And so for me, I felt at home going to those games. And so to watch them and be like, oh, that's Chicharito. You know, that's Raul Jimenez playing. That's, you know, Memo Ochoa. Like, to me, that was like watching, like, idols in a sense, even though I didn't even play soccer. It was kind of like I watched these guys every friendly, every World Cup qualifier, every World Cup, and now I'm, like, watching them in person at the stadium. And so for me, that was super cool. Yeah, those people are just, they're the most famous people in Mexico in the way that I don't ever see a soccer player being in the United States, like even if the U.S. wins the World Cup sometime in the next 20 years. Um, And that's why, I mean, and that's why LAFC signed Carlos Vela when they came in the league. That's why the LA Galaxy bought Chicharito and paid him obscene amounts of money, even though he was, and he's scoring this year. He He was not good last year. He looked like he was washed. The Galaxy don't care. That deal is still such a positive for them. That's one of the most famous people on the continent playing for them. And they made, they made all their money on the jersey sales, too. Right. That's the crazy part. And, you know, and that's the thing, too, is people don't realize this as well, is these Mexican players have literally, that's been their goal their entire life. They haven't had any breaks. It was always become a professional soccer player. And so when they come to the MLS, it's a thing where, they can kind of let their guard down because they're not going to be recognized as much on the street, right? They can kind of go out to dinner now. They can kind of do their thing. And, you know, for better or for worse, they kind of relax. And it's, you know, it's great for their personal life, but then it could hurt their professional life, like we saw with Chicharito and what happened last season. And so, for me, that's where it gets complicated, too, because you had these American kids come to the system where it's like a chip on their shoulder. Like, you want to play soccer? Is that really what you want to do? You don't want to be an NFL kicker. You don't want to be playing in baseball and things like that. And so these kids always have that chip on their shoulder to go on and move on from the MLS and go to Europe, where it's kind of the reverse thing for Mexican kids. It's always like, hey, you got to get to Europe right away. You get to the, they get to Europe, they grind, and they get tired of it. They get burnt out, and they come to MLS, and they kind of have that period of like, okay, now it's time to chill. And that's where those both mentalities kind of, for better or for worse, too, get in the way of soccer. Talking here with Adrian Luevano, uh, sports reporter for Local News 8 down in Pocatello, Idaho, great friend of mine, a fan of both the Mexican and U.S. national teams. And that's what we wanted to talk to him about today. And Adrian, we've we've talked a lot about just that dynamic. I don't think I can let you go, though, without talking about this summer when the United States national team beat Mexico in two international finals. Take me through that from the perspective of of a Mexico fan, and I was, you know, following those along, following along, of course, because I was rooting for the United States. Yeah, and I was, you know, following the discourse around Tata Martino after those two losses by Mexico, and it's like, should he be fired? Tata Martino, of course, is the you know famous manager. He was Atlanta United's first manager, which is where I know him from, but he's coached some of the biggest teams in the world. He's now the manager of Mexico's national team and the discourse around him this summer after Mexico lost the Gold Cup final and the Nations League final to the United States is like, well, should should he be out? I mean, these tournaments don't really mean anything, but that's sort of the, the fever pitch of the Mexican national team. So take me around your perspective from this summer. 
you know, like I, I said earlier, too, like, you know, I'm never losing in these games. That's the fun part about it is, you know, Mexico wins great. If U.S. wins, that's great, too. Um, but I, I consider myself 51% Mexico fan, 49% U.S. fan. So when those games are happening, I'm going for Mexico. And watching this U.S. national team was kind of inspiring because in those two cup finals, they had that never-quit attitude that I love watching the, and that these United States teams have, right? For me, when I watch these U.S. teams and they have the attitude, no one is going to beat them comfortably, right? They're going to cause fit even if they lose. Like, you're going to feel it if you, if, they, if you beat them still, right? And so with the U.S. team kind of playing inspired, I was like, oh, this team might do something when it comes to World Cup qualifying. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that World Cup is actually closer in the grasp of winning it than ever before. But then when you look at World Cup qualifying, that's a whole other beast. And, I, you know, I saw Taylor Twelman's and Alexi Lawless's argument about maybe it's an excuse for making about playing down there in these other countries in the fields and things like that. But it's not an excuse. You know, these, these places aren't like every other place, right? Like when you go down to Panama, Costa Rica, and Honduras, and El Salvador, like you're not playing on stadiums that are even like NCAA sanctioned, you know, when it comes to field and regulations and things like that. So when you get these players coming from Europe that, you know, they know all these trainings and have all these analytics and they have all these, you know, fancy toys out there and they come to Honduras and El Salvador, it's a whole other ball game. And, you know, we, people say we can make that excuse or it's, not, it's just an excuse. We shouldn't make that, but it's a real thing. If the U.S. is playing every game in the United States, there's no doubt in my mind they would qualify for the World Cup every year comfortably. But it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, of course, the big narrative around the United States national team is redemption and sort of redeeming the heartbreak of failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, which is a thing that people really never thought could happen. And I remember that night well uh, when the United States lost to Trinidad and Tobago in, in Cuba and a couple other results broke against them. And it sort of sunk in that the U.S. men's national team was not going to be at the next World Cup. Uh, and and that was pretty brutal. So it's in the three years since then, everything has been sort of building up towards this world qualifying stretch. And it seemed like the narrative this summer when the U.S. beat Mexico in the Gold Cup in the Nations League that was that they had sort of turned the corner. And of course, then yeah. they went and really struggled in that first window of World Cup qualifying and, and took five points from three games. And suddenly now you're in a really tenuous position again where it's like, oh man, we could actually fail to do this because it's like, that is the only thing that matters. I mean, the Gold Cup trophy is nice. The Nations League trophy is nice. None of that matters if you don't get into the World Cup again. And I think that's sort of starting to to sink in for U.S. fans that everything before this has, has kind of just been practiced. But, you know, Mexico handled business okay during that, that first window and is sort of sitting on top of the qualifying standings, though. And I think it's, it's also knowing, like, we talked about this earlier, too, is having that depth, right? Mexico doesn't have to worry about who's your next forward up top, right? Of course, you know, there's always these rumblings that, you know, Funes Mori shouldn't be on the team because he, he naturalized and things like that. But to me, he's such a great asset to have in your team because if you don't know Raul Jimenez, you can turn to him who scored a bunch of goals in the Liga MX, and you can kind of lead that ship from up top. And you have other options as well in the midfield with, you know, Luis Romo, the way he's been playing, as well as having some goalkeepers in the system for Mexico. So that depth is there, right? When you look at the U.S., 
You lose Christian Pulisic, who are you turning to? Gio Reyna? If you don't have Gio Reyna, who are you turning to? Josie Altidore again? Is that really going to be your guy? No. Right? So you got, exactly. So that's the thing. You have to have that depth in the system. And this is where it comes into play because, you know, Christian Pulisic got knocked around. And he, he stubbed off and he was hurt. Well, then who do you turn to? And there's Pepe, right? And Pepe saved the day. And I loved it from him to see that happen. But it's those little things like that where you got to have players that can come in and get the job done, right? And the U.S. needs more of those guys to have those beliefs like Pepe that come in and say, I don't care who the hell I'm playing. I'm just going to go in there and score a banger of a goal and do it again, too, to cement or, or win. And that's what you need because Conga Cap is not getting easier. It's no. getting hard. Like Canada is, you know, like people are so surprised about Canada. I'm like, have you watched this team in the past, you know, Gold Cups and press friendlies? Like they're scoring and they're having some great defense. And Alfonso Davis is continuing to be world-class. And to me, he's the best player in CONCACAF by far. I think he's better than anyone else. I think he's better than Christian Pulisic. I think he's better than Raul Jimenez, you know, Chucky Lozano, anyone. Alfonso Davis is at another level. And so when these people are saying, oh, Canada's, you know, in second place in the World Cup qualifying standings, you know, that's such a shock. I'm like, no, it's not, man. Like, this team's legit. No, Canada definitely is. Alfonso Davies, I mean, he might be the best left back in the world. They've got Jonathan David, who's a 30 million euro striker playing over in Europe. Uh, New England's about to sell Tejan Buchanan to Europe for $8 million or whatever. Another great Canadian winger. They're super, they're good. Jamaica is naturalizing a bunch of like Premier League players who have Jamaican heritage. Like, is West Ham's Mikhail Antonio going to play for Jamaica now? Like, uh, that's definitely possible. It, it It's getting tough. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up Ricardo Pepe, who was the the big hero for the United States in the last qualifying window, 18-year-old striker for FC Dallas. Yeah. Because he sort of embodies just why this U.S.-Mexico rivalry is so unique and so special. I mean, we talked about, like, of course they're so intertwined because of immigration and they're right next to each other and also because yeah. these teams sort of fulfill the stereotypes about the country right like the United States teams has always been considered sort of just like physical and gritty and the Mexican team was the team that knew how to play the game and had the technical skill and etc and they bore out those stereotypes on the field but also it's just like these teams are competing for the same players like Ricardo Pepe yeah could have chosen to play for the United States or Mexico because a lot of these kids are either born in Mexico or grew up in the United States or have Mexican heritage or have grown up in both places. And it's just yeah. been a constant battle. I mean, the Pepe, Ricardo Pepe is playing for the United States. Players like Julian Araujo and the goalkeeper David Ochoa for yeah. Real Salt Lake picked Mexico recently. It's just, it's such a, a tug of war between really for a lot of these kids, the two places where they grew up in representation matters. Let me say that right now. Representation matters because the, what the U S needs is a Mexican American star to really encapsulate all these Mexican Americans. Right. When you look at these teams, the U S trots out, you know, it's a lot more diverse and people always talk about that. As I know some people are like, you know, why does that matter? But it really does, because when you have a kid like me growing up that, you know, is making that tough choice even of rooting for a team, it's not even playing for a team, yeah. but rooting from either Mexico or the United States, when you look at the U.S. team, it's like, who looks like me? 
And at that time, it was kind of Omar Gonzalez. And of course, you know, we don't have an Omar in, in qualifying and all that stuff too. But he was that person that was like, okay, he looks like me. I can kind of, that can be me if I, if I were playing, right? And so what Pepe's doing is also going to inspire those Mexican-Americans coming in and, you know, have that choice as well because people are going to like, well, look at Pepe, look what he's doing. You know, he's doing some crazy stuff. Like, I can be that Mexican-American kid too on the United States national team and have all these Americans love me, right? And so that's huge. That's what the U.S. needs, the Mexican-American stars to come in and do something because that's just going to even get the fan base up even more. And who knows, maybe that split in 10 years when a Mexican-U.S. game might not be 75-25 anymore, it might be 60-40. And that's okay because you're making the ground and you're constantly trying to chip away. You're not going to get the result you want 50-50 overnight, right? It's not going to happen. But you just got to chip away over time. And that's kind of the same thing with MLS and, you know, everything. Like, you're not going to get to be the top league in the world overnight. So make sure you chip away and make sure you're doing the right in-ground and making sure you get to those fans with, you know, Hispanic fans and things like that to create a, a bond and a, a thing that this could be their second team or eventually this could be their kid's first team because, you know, they grew up going with their dad to a game, with their uncle with their dad, or their, you know, their aunt with it, going to a game. So for me – the U.S. needs to find that person and continue to develop their talent pool and get out to those communities that have these kids that are special, right? There's a bunch of kids that play on Sunday League, and you're like, why is this kid playing in college? Because no colleges come out to their schools because, oh, they're the inner city school or, they're, you know, they're the Hispanic school. But there's talent out there, and it, they're ready to go, and they're ready to play, and they have heart, and, you know, they're Mexican-Americans, and – they would love to represent the Mexican national team just as much as the American national team, right? And vice versa. Like, they're there, and it's time to go get them. That's really well said, and, you know, to his credit, it seems like American manager Greg Berhalter understands this, uh, maybe in a way that previous managers like Jurgen Klinsmann maybe didn't. Uh, the U.S. is certainly expanding that outreach, and, and what people have to understand is that the story of soccer in America is not just the story of soccer in the United States because it's so intertwined with the story of soccer in Mexico and Honduras and Guatemala and all the people who have come to America and brought their, their soccer traditions and fandom along with them. And, and I think that's great. Uh, talking here on Soccer and Snow and Smoke with Adrian Luevano, who's a sports reporter for KIFI, ABC Fox, right, in Pocatello? Yeah. ABC Fox in Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, Adrian, thanks for coming on. Anything else that you just wanted to mention has been weighing on your mind before I before I get you out of here? You know, our theme of the podcast this whole time was talking about, you know, the intertwining of Mexico and the United States and how that works out. The United States is in a position right now to blend all these cultures together and create their own soccer identity that no one else in the world can match. And that's the fun part. I want to see that happen. I don't want to see playing. I don't want the American national team to be playing the same soccer they were 10 years ago. And I don't want that to be happening now in the next five, 10 years. I want them to develop a culture and a playing style that's so different from everyone else that it's fun for people to watch. And new soccer fans are going to watch this and think, man, I want to be a part of this. And so when that World Cup rolls around, this upcoming one and the new one in the U.S. as well, I want it to be crazy. I want fans to go nuts. Soccer's growing, man. It's exciting. Yeah, you already planning to hit up a couple games for that? I know I am. 
dude, I have to start saving money now, man. It's gonna oh, be yeah. crazy, right? <laughs> oh yeah, well, the travel costs and the ticket costs, but yeah, I've got my eye on it. I know that um, the some FIFA committee people were down in Atlanta recently checking out Mercedes Benz Stadium for a possible you know, World Cup group stage game, that would be just an absolute dream to me to, to go back down to Atlanta, to Mercedes-Benz, and watch the World Cup there. I just think that'd be so cool. But anyway, Adrian Leveno, a good man. friend of mine, joining me on Soccer and Snow and Smoke here. Adrian works for KFI ABC Fox down in Pocatello, Idaho. Still covering Idaho State for a little while. Uh, so if you're interested in that, uh, I know Adrian's great on that Idaho State football beat. Adrian, where can people find you on, on Twitter? On Twitter, you can at A underscore Luevano, A-L-U-E-B-A-N-O. And so you just go there. I'm verified now. Let's go, Andrew. Wow. It, man. I'm big time. I know. I was super juiced about that. Um, but, yeah, you know, unfortunately, I'm not going to be here in Idaho too much longer. I have, like, a month left here. I'm going back home. got a job in Bakersfield, so I'll be working out there at the ABC Affiliate. I'm excited for that, but I still got some time here in Idaho. Some good Idaho State football as well, some soccer action out here. You can follow me there and we get all the news out for you. Well, congrats on the move, man. I know that's big for you heading back home. Uh, but if you're interested in, you know, a little bit of Idaho football and then when he moves on, I know Adrian will still have some soccer takes on his Twitter. Follow him on there. Adrian, man, good talking with you. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it, man. Have a good one. This is Soccer in Snow and Smoke, the new soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton, and on Soccer in Snow and Smoke, I'll bring you everything you need to know about the beautiful game, from the Montana Grizzlies and local high school programs to the Premier League. Listen to the Footy 15 segment twice a month on Nuanez Now, 4 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday on 102.9 ESPN Missoula, and find the full show online on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now we're joined on Soccer and Snow and Smoke by another good friend from Pocatello, Idaho, Liam Pope, who's the head coach of the Blackfoot High soccer program down there. And Liam is a great guy. I met him when I was working at the Idaho State Journal down in Pocatello because I was covering his team. And he, he's a big sports guy. He used to be the ba- baseball coach at Blackfoot, too. Huge Dodgers fan, Vikings fan. But number one fandom is for Manchester United. And as you'll learn in just a second when he comes on the air, he comes by it honestly. Liam, thanks for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm kind of excited to get to talk about uh, soccer um, or football, however you're going with this one. I I don't think it matters for our purposes. Uh, The podcast is called Soccer and Snow and Smoke. The segment that we play on the radio is called The the Footy 15, so we can do either. We can do either. Well, I'll probably say soccer, because when in Rome and and all that, if that's okay, I don't want to confuse myself. I'm, I'm a simple person. So Liam, uh, very successful high school soccer coach down there in Blackfoot, but you've got a big background with the game. Tell me a little bit about that, like just your background growing up with soccer and playing and watching and, and everything. Okay, so I, I moved, I was actually born here in Blackfoot, um, Idaho, moved to England when I was seven years old. And I mean, I just remember some of my, most of my earliest memories in England 
we're going outside and obviously our friends call in to want to play football. Uh, we, we play on greens out in front of the houses. The, the houses that, um, when I first moved over there, we lived at my grandma's house and she had this green in front of her, uh, in front of her house. She lived in like a townhouse. Um, so there were a row of houses and we'd use two trees as the goal and we'd go out and we'd play. And then obviously that, that was the number one thing for me and my friends to do. If we had a spare moment, uh, we'd get outside and we'd play uh, just all the time. The quality of the ball that we had was sometimes pretty ragged, pretty bad. We were eight, ten. Um, but we just get out there constantly. And the advantage you got in England is obviously you could play throughout the winter. You know, we'd sprint home from school, get home by four o'clock, four thirty. And even if we could only play outside for 20 minutes, we'd get out there, we'd play under the streetlights. And then as I got older, I played for the school team. Um, I was a defender. Um, came back, actually, and did two years of high school in Blackfoot. And we got to the state championship game. I started to play in midfield at that point as well. Uh, went back to England, played for my um, college team, university. Uh, it was the University of Wolverhampton. Um, I captained that team, uh, but I mean, it's important to note that college sports over there isn't what college sports is here. There was no crowds of 30,000 screaming at us or anything like that. It was kind of more or less a few drunk students with nothing better to do on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, and a couple of guys who were walking the dogs who couldn't get out of the way of the field or something. Um, and then I went and played semi-professional soccer, but I, I got to be careful about it. It wasn't, um, it was low semi-professional. I don't want to glorify myself in any way that it wasn't. I played um, in what was called for most of my playing career in the West Midlands Regional League. Um, but I mean, again, got to be careful with semi-professional. Although there were players and leagues and teams or teams in our league who were getting paid and getting paid handsomely, my team never paid out in any way that I remember. I think we had a forward who wouldn't admit it, but we were paying him. But um, we should have been paying him. He, he was a pretty good player. <laughs> but I certainly never got paid. Um, and like I say, I played defense. I guess at college, I kind of played everywhere a little bit. I was like the what you Americans would call a utility uh, player. I, I literally would play defense, midfield, I even had a run of about six or seven games up front when we had a, an injury crisis. But by the time I settled in playing for um, my teams in the West Midlands Regional League, I was more or less a defender or, or a deep-line midfielder. Um, my days of going forward were, were, were past me. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd run forward when the manager wasn't looking just to say I could, and then he'd chew me out and I'd have to run back. And I'd chip in, I don't know, two or three goals a season. Oh. And that was my job. My job was to defend. And then um, I did that till I was 35. I kept going till a decent age. And then when I was 35, we moved on back here to England. And I, I got the head coach job here at, at the high school in Blackfoot and went from playing to, to coaching. Um, for the most part, that said, I still play in the Latina League in Idaho Falls when, I, when my legs will allow me to. And that's probably a long-winded background story, probably more than you wanted, sir. Uh, pretty interesting, though, and I'm sure you're still a handful on those pitches in Idaho Falls. What was it like just go, <laughs> going back and forth between Idaho and England? Like you said, you did it a couple times in your childhood and, and even when you were older. 
you know, I really enjoyed it because I think I got the best. I got the best. High school over here is better than high school over in England. That's not to be disrespectful, but there's just so much more to do, which is so I, I got the, the high school life over over here and had a great time. Then when I'm in my 20s, I lived at, uh, in a town called Walsall. It's about 10 miles outside of um, Birmingham, which is the second biggest city in the UK. Um, although I think now Manchester might rival it for the second biggest city. Um, and so all through my 20s, I got all the excitement in living in a big town, a big city, uh, and everything that goes with it. And then in my 30s, I realized I was a dad and all the stuff that I got to do in my 20s, I realized my kids would probably start doing. So we moved back over here where it was quieter and my kids got the whole high school experience. And um, so I, 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 it was really good because I, I, I've spent my whole life getting the best of both worlds, to be honest with you. Yeah, you mentioned, then, you mentioned Manchester and... This is what I want to talk to you about. The first time I think we we ever talked on the phone, you mm-hmm. figured out that I was a Leicester City fan and you you begged me for Leicester City to pick up three points that week because they're playing Liverpool. And yes. yes. Yeah, you remember that? I do, because I'd seen it on your Twitter profile. You had a picture of Leicester City um, on your, uh, I think it was Vardy, Jamie Vardy on your... Um, profile uh, picture for your Twitter. So I, I asked you about that. You told me. And yeah, and dude, anybody who could beat Liverpool, that's a good day for me. Um, uh, because, uh, like say, uh, you mentioned Manchester. Manchester United are my team. And I know anybody who knows soccer will probably be like, well, Don, he's just said he's from Birmingham. Um, but you got to remember, my dad's American, and he went to England to serve a, 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 a Mormon mission and he went there when during the days of Best Law and Charlton. He got an American over there watching Best Law and Charlton. He immediately took to Manchester United, and I just took on from there. Um, and let's face it, I wasn't going to support Birmingham City. They're terrible. No way. <laughs> and I was seven years old. There was no way I was going to pick up Birmingham City as a seven-year-old. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm a Manchester United fan. And that's why I begged you to get three points off of Liverpool. Any day that Liverpool can get beat is a good day for me, man, without a doubt. Um, I can't even hide it. It's just how I am. It's how I'm wired. And I don't think Leicester City managed it that weekend. They've gone through some tough times. But Manchester United, I mean, that must have been just a trip you're rooting for. I think, you know, it's it's fair to call them maybe the most iconic sports team in the world, right? Like there are some other contenders for that title, I guess, probably Real Madrid and Barcelona, but Manchester United, I mean, you see, you see the crest and you see the colors everywhere. And they've had, of course, great players. What was it like following that team for as long as you have? Well, from the nineties on, it was pretty good, but right. I mean, during the eight, I got to tell you, and you know, I'm, well, I'm 49 years old. So unfortunately for the first part of me following, you know, we, we moved to England in 1979, like say I was seven. So through the 80s, um, honestly, not very good. We, we were awful. We sucked. United were not a good team throughout most of the 80s, um, especially as you turned into the, the, the late 80s. They were, they were a bad team. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. And like you say, they're, they're iconic. Um, you said that. I remember when I was lived in England, there was a poll 
of sporting brands and the two most iconic worldwide brands were Manchester United and the New York Yankees. Um, but I'm a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, so I didn't really care for that part of the poll. Um, but, but, and then in the 90s, and I used to go watch them regularly in the very early 90s when I started college. Um, I'd go watch them most Saturdays. The year before the Premier League, I remember, I, I probably watched them about a dozen times. The year before that, I went like 20 plus times, went to almost every home game and about six or seven away games as well. Um, I saw Ryan Giggs on his debut, actually. And then it got better. And then, like, like I said in the introduction, I played college um, for my university. So I stopped going the year they won the league. I, think, I, don't, I don't even think I saw them once the year they won the league, which is something I'm going to regret till the day I die, quite honestly. Um, I, I'd watched all through the awful 80s, the average early 90s. And then when they started winning things, I, I wasn't going anymore. And I think I, I, after that, after I graduated college, I, might, I may have got up there maybe once or twice a season. And that was about it because I was playing every Saturday. I was training in midweek. If we didn't have a game, we trained at least every Tuesday, Thursday. And if we had a game in there, um, I was out three or four nights. So, so I don't know. I mean, it was a little bit of a mixed bag. But certainly since the early 90s, oh, it's been fantastic. Uh, honestly, it's been fantastic. Uh, I was pretty cocky and arrogant for a long time between the 90s and the 2000s. Oh, yeah, that's well-deserved. What do you think sets Manchester United apart just as a brand, um, as, as a team, as as a program? I mean, it's something that, you know, I, growing up just purely in America and, and coming to soccer sort of later in life, I didn't follow soccer when those great United teams in the 2000s under Sir Alex Ferguson were, were winning. What sets, what sets them apart as, as a brand and, and as a global brand? You know, honestly, I think the first steps to that came through the, the Munich tragedy, the Munich uh, air, uh, air tragedy. Um, when the, the United plane cr- uh, crashed in Munich in, what, 1958 and um, killed a, a lot of their players. I think that sort of they got a lot of sympathy on the world stage for that because that was a heck of a soccer team. I mean, that was a heck of a soccer team. Everybody figured that that would be the first um, English team to win the European Cup, which is now the Champions League. Um, uh, and yeah, the, the, the Munich air um, disaster is probably what did it. And then teams sort of almost, or, or fans across the world were willing United to come back uh, and be successful. And then you get to the late 60s where you've got um, Bobby Charlton and George Best playing for them and Dennis Law, and they're so entertaining, and then they become successful. I think people just followed that along, and then uh, at that point, it's just a tidal wave. And, and even when United, I mean, I, I say that the 80s were dire. Manchester United have always really, even when they weren't getting results, for the most part, they've been a very entertaining, attack-minded team. I remember in the 80s when Ron Atkinson was the, the manager. Boys, there were some seasons we were awful in terms of results. But boy, we were fun to watch. Um, just because it was always an attack-minded team. Uh, and then obviously you get um, to Sir Alex from the, the, the late 80s on. 
and he built his team around youth again. Uh, and I think um, even Matt Busby built his team around youth. I think any team that's going to have a youth culture like that and bring homegrown players in, there's always going to be people who like to watch that. And then when they're entertaining as well, that's what sets them apart. And then you throw in the, the marketing men from the, the 90s into the 2000s, then they're just marketing themselves well all the way across the, 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 the globe. And I think you combine all those factors and you have a global iconic team. I'm glad you brought up the the point about just, you know, playing an entertaining style. And I'm going to take a slight digression here because this is something that I ask every soccer coach that I talk to. I, I was talking to the Montana head coach, Chris Chitovitsky, a, a week or two ago, and I asked him about this. How do you how do you balance just the way that you set up your team? Because it's the big dichotomy when we're talking about, you know, the clash of styles is do you set up attacking or do you set up to defend and does that change based on the quality of opposition that you're playing you've been really successful with Blackfoot how do you manage that game to game because you're facing such a wide range of talent you know on the other team from game to game does that factor into to your game planning at all a little bit honestly I probably should factor that in a little bit more but because I'm a Manchester United fan. I mean, that definitely has an influence on me. I've always watched attacking um, soccer. But even the teams I played on in England, um, even in the 80s and 90s, and and England was notorious for what they called the long ball through the 80s and into the early 90s, I always played for guys who wanted to play soccer right. Ball on the deck, pass and move. So my biggest influence is, even when I played in the West Midlands Regional League, we weren't a team that went looking to headhunt, to kick, to hoof, to hoof the ball. We to do to a little ball. route one, yeah. Yeah, we never were a route one kind of team. We were ball on the deck, pass and move. Uh, and my manager, um, Fred Dinham, man, he would get so angry. I was the sweeper. So for him, I was that first line of attack. I'd get the ball in space behind the back line. And if I just tried to ping that ball aimlessly long, Man, I'd hear him in a heartbeat screaming at me from the side. So uh, my, my philosophy is an attack, try and play real soccer thing. So, and that's just like say my own personal influences have always been about that. So I always try and set Blackfoot up as an attacking team that's going to. This year, last year we got to the state championship game. This year we're a young and experienced team. But every one of our practices, it's ball on the deck, quick moving stuff. All of our drills are, are that kind of thing. You know what I mean? We, 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 we look to transition quickly. We look to pass the ball quickly on the deck. Um, and I probably don't set it up game to game as much as I really ought to because it just goes against what I believe. I'm, Dude, honestly, Andrew, if you ever see a Blackfoot team put the low block on, I'd probably quit as head coach huh. a month before that. Um, we're, we're not going to set a low block up. It's not our style. We'll be tight. We'll be compact. We'll be intelligent. But there's no way. I, it's just not a philosophy that I could prescribe to putting eight or nine guys behind a ball. It's ugly. It's not, it's not soccer. I don't like it. 
I love asking that question of coaches because the the response is is so telling. And yeah, I mean that's that's a great answer. I mean, a lot of coaches will come in and and say that they want to play attacking and keep possession of the ball and nice combination play and everything, and then they'll sort of realize that they have to be pragmatic or they don't have the talent for it and they'll they'll back off of that. But it's it's just always so interesting to hear to hear what coaches say and what their philosophy is. Talking here on soccer and snow and smoke with one of my friends from down in southeastern Idaho, Liam Pope, who's the head coach at Blackfoot High School down there. He's got a great pedigree in the game. Grew up mostly in England played semi-professional soccer in England for a long time. Liam, let's get back to Manchester United because right now uh, I think Manchester United is the most interesting team in the world just based purely on the fact that they are Manchester United. They managed to have a transfer move that was bigger than Lionel Messi leaving Barcelona. I mean, when Lionel Messi leaves Barcelona... And then it's not the biggest soccer news in the world a week later because Manchester United brings Ronaldo back to Manchester. That's just incredibly interesting. And because, you know, they haven't been firing on all cylinders quite yet this season. There have been a couple dips. So you have that spotlight of Ronaldo's back. They've got Paul Pogba there, Bruno Fernandes, uh, Marcus Rashford, just these, these huge stars but there have been a couple hiccups in the early season. So where are you with? First of all, I guess what was your what was your experience with Manchester United this summer with with the transfer business that they did? You know, I liked what we've done before. I think we're well, I, I, and I still think we're short of a defensive central midfielder, and I think that's what's going to stop United winning the, winning the title. Uh, you and I, when we were talking on the phone the other day, we I, I, I think we talked about that. Um, but I was pretty happy with what we did. I mean, I, I think the Ronaldo transfer, the fact that it over, overshadowed uh, the Sancho transfer to United, I thought that was great business. And it showed that United were going to go and attack. So we go and get Jaden Sancho, and we're looking all good and everything's happy there. And then we go and get uh, Ronaldo as well. I, 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 boy, I was excited. I Honestly, I felt like a little kid again. You, you can ask my wife, and I know this is like really amateur and like immature, and people are probably going to be out there and think, "Oh, he's pathetic." Man, I was I was singing Viva Ronaldo for the whole ten days before he made his United debut. I was up thirty minutes before we kicked off in his debut, um, uh, his second debut against Newcastle. I was hyped about our business. Um, I don't think it's going to win us the league. Like I say, I still think we're um, a, a defensive central midfielder away from winning the, the title. But if you're a United fan, you probably shed tears of happiness when we signed Ronaldo again. Yeah, for for something to overshadow, I mean, like you said, you guys signed Jaden Sancho, finally got that move done, bringing him back to England yeah. from Borussia Dortmund, and that's one of the best young attacking players in the world. Signed Varane, yeah. right, from, from Real Madrid, finally got that yeah. move done to partner Harry Maguire. Yeah. It, and for those to be just completely under the radar by the end of the summer is, is, is crazy. Yeah. I mean, any other year, a Sancho and Varane uh, signing is going to be uh, a premium. I mean, it, you're just not going to beat that. I mean, I was looking at a lot of websites and stuff that grade, because, you know, Americans love to grade everything, 
that grade the transfer. United already were getting A's for the transfer business in the summer. Could have got an A plus with a, a deep midfielder. And then you go and get Ronaldo. And and it just, I don't know. I mean, you, you've probably seen the same stuff on TV that I have. Just the level of excitement over there. Um, I was getting messages from my brothers who both still live in England um, about the Ronaldo thing. Just a different level for a United fan. I mean, I, I don't think United fans, we haven't been this excited since um, Sir Alex Ferguson retired. Uh, just no way. Nothing has got us this excited since Sir Alex Ferguson retired. Not even close. Not even close. Yeah, so what were your memories of Ronaldo the first time? I, like I said, I, I came to soccer a little bit late. I have a conception of sort of Ronaldo as he existed at United when he was young and the the most coveted young player in the world. But yeah. I didn't, I never really watched him play on those teams. So, what were your what were your memories of him the first go round at, at Manchester United? The the flying winger. I mean, the the thing when Ronaldo was there the first time, and I was lucky enough to see him, um, you know, several times at, at Old Trafford. Um, it, it, he plays different now to what he used to. That first time, he was like an out and out proper winger, um, which again is the reason why United fans just took to him immediately. Because United fans love wingers. You look at Ryan Giggs before him. You look at Lee Sharp. Going back to the 80s, Jesper Olsen, uh, a Danish player. We love wingers at Manchester United. And he came in and just fit that old-fashioned, far-out-wide, hug-the-touchline kind of thing. Go with speed and fearless. And that's, that's how I remember him. Um, just so quick and just a true out-and-out winger who would take fullbacks on and get past him and, and create stuff. If anything, at times, frankly, he held on the ball a little bit too long. Um, there were times where his first time there, when he was very young, what, the 19, 20-year-old, it was like, hey, a couple less step-overs and put a cross in there, if you don't mind, bud. Um, but, but, I mean, you know, it's like... Um, but, but, I mean, he was still just fantastic. And then, I mean, he goes to Real Madrid and you know, he becomes an out-and-out striker at that point, and then Juventus. And um, I mean, he's a different player now because he plays so much more down the middle. But, I mean, I, I remember that first incarnation, that flying winger out wide. Just so exciting to watch. Such a fascinating transition that he made because this is what people like me who, who didn't watch him at Manchester United the first time don't get is, yeah, I mean, he was he was – a, a flair player. I mean, he was the cocky young Portuguese international coming into Manchester United. And he was just, he played very differently to the way that he does now. He wasn't scoring, you know, 40 or 50 goals a year like he would do at Real Madrid. Did you follow his career after, after he left? I mean, did you have any sort of attachment to him after he left? Oh yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. I, um, I, I, you start watching Spanish Spanish football. You know, he, he, he leaves, um, and, and suddenly I'm watching La Liga every week. You know what I mean? Just to, to follow him and see how he do, does. It's not that I really care for Real Madrid, but suddenly I'm watching Real Madrid, and I hope they win. Um, then he goes to Juventus, and honestly, in, in, in Italy, I'd always had a soft spot for AC Milan because I was a defender. So I loved AC Milan back in the days where they had Paolo Maldini 
and Frank Albarese at the back. And suddenly now in Italy, I want Juventus to be winning the league um, every year. And prior to that, I really didn't like Juventus, apart from I really love the uniform, you know, their, their uniforms, their kits. The black and white stripes are pretty iconic as well. But um, so, yeah, I did follow him uh, all the way across. And, and even this summer, you know, when there was talk that he was going to go to PSG, you know, when it became clear that he was going to leave, you know, that he might leave Juventus. I'm still sitting there, you know, and looking up at the big man up in the up in the heavens and thinking, dude, come on, I go to church, send Ronaldo back our way, let him finish his career, don't let don't let him go to Paris, let him come back to Manchester, and you're still thinking it's not going to happen or anything like that, and you know, and then suddenly he does, and and I'm fired up, but yeah, totally, I I, I followed him, and um, yeah, I mean, I didn't become. Real Madrid supporter, but I'm watching Real Madrid. I'm watching Juventus. Um, so yeah, of course I am because he is. He's, he's he's United legend. I want that guy to succeed. Yeah, I have no particular love for for Manchester United being being a Leicester fan and sort of uh, competing with them yeah. for for Champions League spots in the last couple of years. And and other than that, just understanding them as sort of this this titan of the league. But Ronaldo coming back to to Manchester United makes me happy in a way that, you know, yeah. the complete opposite way that Lionel Messi leaving Barcelona makes me unhappy yeah. and, frankly, a little yeah. bit sad. Ronaldo coming yeah. back to Manchester United makes me, like, happy and excited to see how it plays out because he's... It, it's such an interesting narrative because he's coming back as a completely different player, like we discussed. He's coming back as yeah. a, a completely different, like, level of global celebrity. I mean, he's one of the most famous people on the planet now. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, and I think like you bring up a good point and a good comparison with the the, the Messi thing. Messi was a guy who should have played at Barcelona for the rest of his career. Agreed. And he ended up leaving. There was a sour taste in the mouth. He 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 left because he had to leave, not you know because either financial or things had broken down behind the scenes or a combination of the two. And that's almost a sad story in that. He should have finished at Barcelona. Whereas Ronaldo, he was coming back to the... To, he was really coming back to, to home, almost. Manchester United, I know he's from Portugal, but Manchester United is where he's found his feet. It's where he broke into the game and became world famous. So for him, it's almost like he's going, coming back. You know, Ronaldo's coming back to a glorious homecoming. Messi, it kind of ended up being an ugly lead that... A player like Lionel Messi deserves better than, if you know what I mean. One hundred percent agreed. Yeah, it it just it just left you almost. I mean, you know, Messi and Ronaldo have been the two best players in the world, um, and I know there's people that argue a case for the two best players ever. I'm I'm not sure if I'm quite there, but certainly um, of the last decade, they've without doubt been the two best players in the world. Somebody will throw in Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic, I mean, is a is um another player maybe, but it's Messi and Ronaldo w- without doubting. You're exactly right about Messi and Ronaldo, and I'm I'm gonna ask you this. I mean, because I, I think it's such a fascinating question. Who who would you take between the two of Ronaldo every time? Okay, every time, every time. I just love his. I I just um again, it goes back to the Manchester United brand. Listen, Messi plays a great a great game of soccer. He, he's amazing. He does things that are uh, different world-like. 
But again, as, as United, but not just because United, it, Ronaldo played for United, but he's a Manchester United type of player, very cavalier, um, very open. Just that, like say that, like I said, he was a winger at the start, um, and I just love that. I just love his style of playing. I think Messi is a little bit more patient. Um, it goes back to the Barcelona. Uh, tiki-taka type stuff. You can make 40 passes and then score a goal. Um, or you can rip a team open. And I just love teams that rip another team open with fast, but still very exciting flowing soccer. I mean, it's ball to feet, but it's just like, it's lightning quick. It's, it's powerful. And so I'm taking Ronaldo every time. But, but, but again, I'm, I'm a Man United fan, so there's no way in a million years I would take anyone different. Otherwise, you could like... I, I, Nah, I'd get executed by my brothers if I gave any other answer than that. I love asking people that question too. I, I, we could argue about it a little bit if you want. I love asking people that question. I've asked it to two people in the three episodes that I've done in this podcast, and I was kind of, I kind of framed it the first way, and I was kind of like. Well, I think most people would take Messi, and the person I was interviewing immediately disagreed with me, and we we got into it a little bit, and so now I'm I'm two for two on here having people say they would they would take Ronaldo. <laughs> I I just damn, and I mean you know I, I, again being a high school coach, you know that I, I've had this argument with the players uh, at practice before a lot of the time, and a lot of them are Messi, and some of them say Messi just because they know it's going to get a reaction from me as well and, and it works they do get that reaction from me um, it's like dude do you want me to make you run tonight I mean uh, yeah, what's going on here um, but it, I just it's just that style it's just that that, that strength uh, that, that I just love I, for me it's just it's, it's how I envisage a Manchester United player should be then he goes to Real Madrid um, and as, as glorious soccer as it was from Barcelona, I just always felt Real Madrid in Spain um, was more exciting, maybe apart from the Jose Mourinho a couple of years. Maybe you can't right. say that was more exciting because he's very, very pragmatic. But I just, I don't know. I just prefer that kind of player. I, I, I really do. Um, but I'm not going to say that Messi's a bad player because, if he wanted to come and play for Blackfoot High School tomorrow, I'd probably, I'd probably find a spot for him in the team, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think you'd probably be able to manage to fit him into your starting lineup. Yeah, I, I probably would. And uh, poor Manny Bartolo um, would probably lose the number 10 as well. <laughs> I, wouldn't do what, I wouldn't do what PSG did. I'd be like, listen, Manny, dude. No offense, bud, but um, you're playing the number 22 for the rest of the season. I've got this new kid come in, and I, I'm going to let him have the number 10. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the thing that's so fascinating about it is regardless of what side you take in this debate, this is, to me, <laughs> the best debate about like who is the greatest of all time that you're ever going to find yeah. in, in any yeah. team sport right now. Like I am tired mm-hmm. of hearing about LeBron versus Jordan. Right, and that's the only other one where there is even a debate. I mean, in hockey, there's not a debate. In in football, I mean, if you say something other than Tom Brady, if you say somebody other than Wayne Gretzky in hockey, you're sort of just arguing to make an argument. You don't really have an argument. Yeah. And you know, ba- and I would say world, in world soccer right now, I mean, I was having this debate just, um, oh, within the last 
the last two or three weeks with Ronaldo signing for United, I was having this debate with my friends in England. We've got like a WhatsApp group going on. Um, and, and I'll tell you right now, Pelé kind of came out on top with a couple of us there. I've got one friend who's a, a season ticket holder at Anfield. So there's no way he was going to go with Ronaldo, obviously. Right. Uh, in fact, he wouldn't mention Ronaldo by name. He just called him pretty boy. Um, he, he, was, he wasn't even going to mention him by, by name, you know what I mean? Um, and I mean that. He would not even call him Ronaldo or Cristiano. It's just, oh, pretty boy. It's not him. Um, but um, boy, Pelé kind of came on top there. Somebody else mentioned Maradona. And then I pointed out that um, I, I pointed out that Maradona, when he punched that ball, I, boy, I'm, I, I, you're not. You tell me I can't. I've got to keep this PG, so I can't use the word that I used in this conversation. Um, but but it, it wasn't complimentary. And then all of us agreed. Yeah, none of us are going to vote for Maradona just because of what he did against England in the '86 World Cup. We're still a bit bitter about that. I haven't moved on. Um, so Pele Pele kind of came on top. And then um, my other friend, who's a season ticket holder at West Bromwich Albion, the poor lad, um, he actually said, okay, Liam, straight up now, Ronaldo or George Best. Mm. And boy, that, that was a debate. I couldn't, that was, that one kicked me in the stomach. I'm like, I, I don't know where to go with that question. So I kind of, I kind of slinked out of that one. Um, Actually, I think I gave it to Ronaldo because Ronaldo's at least had success on the international stage. And I know it's not George Best's fault that he played for Northern Ireland, but I think it has to count against him in terms of all-time best players. Yeah. You know? Um, I, I think it has to. But, boy, that one, that hurt because I remember being standing on the Stratford end all through the 80s and, you know, and singing songs about George Best. I don't know. That was a tough one. That was a mean question by my friend. Um, you know, I don't think people who support West Bromwich Albion should be allowed to ask that question. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we've had that debate a lot recently, my, my, uh, my friends and I, definitely. Yeah, I think it's a great debate. It's probably a never-ending debate. I'm... I'm a yeah, youngster, yeah. so I I can't possibly see how anybody could ever have been better than Cristiano or or Lionel Messi. Um, yeah. But of, of course, I don't have that perspective. But I mean, the stats that those guys put up and the amount of winning that they have done and the way that they play—it's just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's hard for me to sort of calibrate that there could have been somebody better than than the two of them. Yeah, and I could definitely see that. But then again, I mean, you, you talk about that um, Jordan and LeBron debate. Right. That's because people don't remember seeing Jordan back at his prime because you've got a younger generation of people who only see LeBron. Um, so they throw his name in. And listen, LeBron's a heck of a basketball player. He's not Michael Jordan, in my opinion. Um, he might be number two. I'll take LeBron over Colby. I'll throw that out there right now, and you can hate me. I'm taking LeBron over Colby without doubt. Sure. But I'm not taking him over Michael Jordan. Um, and likewise, those of a certain thing. And, and, and I'll say that part of my – the reason I'm not counting Maradona is just because he punched that ball in the day against England, and it's total homerism, and I'm not moving away from it. I don't even care. Um, I don't even care. When, when, when you know, one of the, 
most favourite ever world players for Scotland is Maradona. That says it all right there. They they love him because of what he did to England. So I'm gonna I'm just not Maradona's not in it for me. <laughs> yeah, Maradona of course not a favorite of any England fans no, after no, the hand no. of God goal in the nineteen eighty six no. World Cup final. And of course he, he carved up England for the goal of the century, you know, right before that too. Right after it. Right after Right after, it. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I cried that day, Andrew. I gotta tell you, I, I was tearful that day. I really was. I, I watched that game. They did that. And then, yeah, I shed tears that day. I was, what, 15, I guess? 15, yeah, I think something like that. Um, I cried that day. It was a bad day. It was a bad day. Talking here with Liam Pope, a friend of mine from down in Pocatello, Idaho, the Pocatello area. England fan, Manchester United fan, high school soccer coach, great student of the game. We're making him bring up all his worst memories here at the end. So, yeah. Liam. <laughs> Traumatizing me. <laughs> yeah. Liam, before I get you out of here, let's end on a, hopefully a happier note. I mean, where do you see Manchester United this year in the league? What's just sort of your picture of the overall, uh, I guess, tiers of the Premier League this year? I mean, who do you think has a chance to win the title? Could Manchester United be in that hunt? Um, who's the top four or five teams? I think United will hang around. I don't see them winning the title. Uh, like I said earlier, we're a central, a deep, uh, yeah, defensive central midfielder away from winning the title. I think against teams that you can outscore, uh, we'll outscore them. I think United will be the most exciting team to watch in the Premier League this year. I really do. You, by a long way, it won't even be close. But, I mean, and again, we talked about tactics and philosophies earlier. Um, Tuchel's got um, Chelsea playing very well organized. They're very compact. You're not going to break Chelsea down very often. Uh, So I think you're looking for me. I think the top two teams are going to be City, Manchester City, or Chelsea. I think Liverpool as much as it really pains me to say it, will knock on the door. They're not going to go away now that Van Dijk's back in their defense because they're going to be better organized at the back. And then I think you're looking at United. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. But I think United might sneak into third ahead of Liverpool still. I'm optimistic about that. Um, But I think the two teams that are going to fight it out for the title are going to be City and Chelsea, in my opinion. Um, I hope it's not Liverpool. Yeah, I, I I agree with you 100%. I think, you know, we've had our fun the last couple of years, but yeah. I think that yeah. there's a clear top four teams this year, and I think those mm-hmm. spots are pretty well sewed up unless, you know, somebody hits a bad run of injuries or just bad luck or things fall apart for one of those teams in the, in the top four. I agree with you also that Manchester United is probably one player away from, from being at that top level. Uh, the you know I'm I'm a Leicester City fan. Leicester's going to sell a player every summer. The player I really mm-hmm. hope we don't sell is Wilfred Ndidi, and I hope we don't sell him to Manchester United because he would turn that team into just a, a terror. And I think I, and I think you're right, but I think you're going to be okay because I think United. Well, if you go by the press and all the rumors, I really think United are looking at um, Declan Rice from sure. West Ham. I think that's who we've decided 
is on our shopping list right now. Um, so I think you're going to kind of be okay. Unfortunately for you, I could see um, I, I could see another top team picking picking him off. Uh, I'm afraid. I don't think he stays at Leicester for too much longer, particularly as this year. And I, I'm sorry to say this, but obviously you haven't started off very well. You probably keep him if you're knocking on the door of the top four every year and, and getting in the Europa League and, and maybe winning cups. But I, I I hope I'm wrong because really I kind of have a soft spot for Leicester for what they did a few years ago. Um, and they're a small team, easy to like, a good Cinderella story. I just think that you're... I think this might be a year where you drop down as low as seventh or eighth and you may have had your... Your, your peak, and then, I mean, I don't think you're going to be in a place where you're looking at relegation in any time in the next decade. I really don't. Your ownership is too good to let that happen, but I, I, I don't see that you're going to be knocking on the Champions League door for a few years. I really don't. I'm right there with uh, you. I'm, I'm stressing out this season already. We're four or five games into it, but, uh, you know, yeah. I'm sweating through the games. Um so we'll we'll see how that goes for Leicester. We'll see how it goes for Manchester United. Uh, Manchester United fan, England fan, Liam Pope joining us here on Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Liam, that was great, man. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for lending me. I've really enjoyed it. I, I really have enjoyed talking um, soccer for, for, well, for the last, how long? I thought it was going to be 10 minutes. It's been longer. I've had a blast, so thank you.